In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. The false church teaches that happiness and prosperity are true signs of God's favor. Health and prosperity, signs of God's favor. But actually, neither are any proof of God's love for you. God's favor, his love of you, is known only in the love of Christ Jesus, who suffered for your sins, died for you while you were yet dead in your trespasses, and rose in victory over your enemies of sin, death, and the devil. From Christ, your sins are pardoned. Your death is transformed into a blessed rest, and the devil is bound and will be cast into hell. Those are true, reliable signs of God's favor for you. Not your happiness or your prosperity or health. And so we think that things go quite well for unbelievers. We look around and we see, well, the same sun is shining on them, the same rain falling. And often we envy them. They seem to have even better job prospects, more complete health care coverage, wealth, and other luxuries that we covet. But evaluating God's favor upon you by looking at others' life, even your own life, that is delusion. What good are all the world's riches, all the world's health and prosperity, if one dies apart from Christ? What good is happiness if one lacks the joy of sins forgiven? and heaven promised. What good would be the removal of your eating disorder, high blood pressure, cancer, osteoporosis, or heart condition, if it still meant that you would die apart from the promised resurrection of the flesh and life everlasting? You see how getting caught up in the earthly and temporal is really foolishness. Now we know this by nature and by our experience and by what Scripture itself says. Jesus says, moth and rust destroy the things of this world. Thieves break in and steal. Or come today and gone tomorrow. We aren't to look to our present life for any sort of confidence. You know this, again, from experience. Today, you might be wealthy, and then tomorrow bankrupt. Today, you could be healthy, and then tomorrow receive a devastating diagnosis. Today, you could be quite happy, cheerful even, and tomorrow be beset by depression. Or even today, being safe, and tomorrow threatened by enemies, and so on. Rather than envy those who seem to have a better life, and yet a life apart from Christ, we ought to rather weep and pray for them. 
that God the Holy Spirit would call them, gather them into his church, and enlighten him, them here as he has enlightened you with God's holy word, and thereby give them a share of all the blessings that are ours in Jesus. That's why on first glance, we might be tempted to pity those 4,000 of today's gospel. Look at them, maybe even how idiotic they are, ignorant of their lack of bread. A great multitude has followed Jesus, and they brought nothing to eat. Now, it's true, they have lived a blessed life. They've seen great miracles from him. They've heard phenomenal preaching. Maybe even their hearts have been changed. Actually, that's the reason why they persist with him three days into the wilderness, into the desolate place, hungry. They've given their full priority, heart, mind, soul, to Jesus, the bread from heaven. And thereby they are, it seems, ignoring their bodily need. You always have Jesus with you when you follow him where he leads. But if you ignore his word where he speaks, he may depart from you. Luther described Christ's spirit as a passing rain shower upon his native land of Germany. He prophesied, so to speak, that one day the spirit might depart from Germany, from his kindred. For when the soil no longer has need of rain, the cloud moves on, he said. And he was teaching us as it is, as Jesus tells us it is with the Holy Spirit. He blows when and where he wills. Always raining down with the word of Jesus, always giving the good news of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. And yet when the ground refuses to soak it in, that is to receive the word, the Spirit may move on to the next place, to the next people. Instead, we are, to encur- we are encouraged today by these 4,000 who are Jesus' hanger-ons, who follow him wherever he goes. They've actually seen it before. They know their own history. Their parents went on exodus with Jesus from Egypt to the Promised Land, from death unto life. And we've seen it before. Life goes on until it doesn't. This world is our Egypt under an evil tyrant, Satan, where we are enslaved to a cruel taskmaster named Sin. We are given to see what everyone else tries to hide about their life that all the vain pursuits of this world, that is, that going after this world's pleasures and wealth and happiness, it doesn't last. It's always fleeting. We may enjoy them for now, but they will have their end. Which begs the question, then why do we worry so much about what we call earthly bread? the things needed for this body and life. We look to our neighbors, and they have them. 
We have them too. God has promised to always provide for you. He's promised never to forget you or to abandon you. And yet we doubt. But that's right where Jesus wants us. Believing, trusting, as the multitudes did, that only Jesus has the words that we need to hear. Only in him do we have the food that lasts into eternity. Only in him are we fed with cool water of life that never ceases to refresh our souls. There's really no need for us to put down roots, to build up tabernacles, to set up shop, to try to hold on to Jesus in a place or a time. But rather, we are to follow him wherever he leads, like a barnacle on a ship, never letting go. Or rather, to ride on his coattails into the cross and resurrection and then with him into heaven. These multitudes, as silly as it may seem to go into the wilderness without bread, they know and they believe and they trust in this Jesus. They trust in him for their life of faith, for a mission of love and truth, and they hold on to him even when it means that they're going to be oppressed by their government. They're going to receive a harsh word, vitriol, from their family or former friends. Even if it means that as they show great love to their neighbors and acts of charity and generosity, they lack earthly prosperity. If we were to just look to the things of their life and flesh, they would be most pitied, being oppressed by government, rejected by family, and having so little. They would be most pitied if it were not for this fact. (laughs) Jesus is risen from the dead. They have not forgotten the faith of their fathers. They have not lost their first love. They see him. They believe in him. They trust in him. Therefore, from that, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Thereby, Jesus reveals to us that he knows our bodily need. He and the Father and the Spirit have not forgotten us. God at times reserves his gifts from us, but not to hurt or to harm us. He does this that we would trust in him, that we would not think that This world's wealth and prosperity are our doing, our own accomplishment, but rather gifts. Thereby, he allows sickness or trial or even temptation to be experienced by us, not to hurt and harm, but to crucify in us our idolatrous love of this life, along with all of its trappings, wealth and happiness. He is about destroying our self-confidence, pride, and arrogance. He humbles the proud to exalt them. He sees you and provides for you always, even if it means sickness or health, happiness or sadness, joy or sorrow. And he knows your hunger 
quite well. You remember, he fasted 40 days in the desert. So also, he knows your sufferings. He knows what it means to suffer in the body, having been beaten and flogged, marred behind, beyond recognition. Jesus knows what it means to be alone, abandoned, forsaken. Jesus even knows what it means to die. It isn't divinity that overcame that very real and human death. No, he gave up his breath, just as we all will, and was placed in the tomb. Therefore, we can never say that Jesus doesn't understand us, what it means to suffer in body and in spirit. He knows what our life is like in every way, hungry, thirsty, sick, pain, abandoned, mocked, forsaken by friends and father, even dying. And as an assurance that it is all finished in Jesus, he gives to us his body and blood. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. He gives you in his holy supper everything that he has purchased and won for you. He covers your guilt and shame. He casts down every idol from its throne. He turns your heart away from caring more about this life with its cares and pleasures to instead care for your neighbor, to have faith toward him. Your eyes are given to see Jesus today as you hear his words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. He remembers you as you remember him. He has not forgotten you. He's been here the whole time, caring for you, holding fast to you by your baptism, that you would hold fast to him by that same baptism. This is all true no matter what you may have thought today by reflecting upon the misery or pain or loss of your life. He sees your hunger, and he has compassion on you. But his compassion is not just mere idea or abstract thought, but it is loving doing. He sees your hunger, and he feeds you in the way that you so desperately need. He sees your sickness, and he heals you. He sees your impending death. And yes, he tells you again, he's already transformed that, too, into a restful sleep. Do you see? Everything needed for body and life, for eternity, is taken care of. And he's promised to take care of all your needs today, too, for your body. As you pray, give us this day our daily bread. The problem isn't with God, it's with us. So let us dwell richly in his word of forgiveness, casting off all of our own thoughts of pleasure and health and prosperity, our desperate heart's desire, and instead to trust in him, to be like those multitudes, whether it is 4,000 or 100, 
Let's cling to every word from Jesus, to listen to him, to hold fast to him, to never let go, and to trust in him through all things. In Jesus' name, amen.